Book number three, Lena Lingard, Chapter two of My Antonia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Jeff Cowgill. My Antonia by Willa Cather. Book three, Lena Lingard, Chapter two. One March evening in my sophomore year, I was sitting alone in my room after supper. There had been a warm thaw all day, with mushy yards and little streams of dark water gurgling cheerfully into the streets out of old snowbanks. My window was open, and the earthy wind blowing through made me indolent. On the edge of the prairie where the sun had gone down, the sky was turquoise blue like a lake, with gold light throbbing in it. Higher up, in the utter clarity of the western slope, the evening star hung like a lamp suspended by silver chains, like the lamp engraved upon the title page of old Latin texts, which is always appearing in new heavens and waking new desires in men. It reminded me, at any rate, to shut my window and light my wick and answer. I did so regretfully, and the dim objects in the room emerged from the shadows and took their place about me with the helpfulness which custom breeds. I propped my book open and stared listlessly at the page of the Georgics, where tomorrow's lesson began. It opened with the melancholy reflection that in the lives of mortals, the best days are the first to flee. Optima dies prima fugit. I turned back to the beginning of the third book, which we had read in class that morning. Primus ego and patrium mecum deducum musus. For I shall be the first, if I live, to bring the muse into my country. Cleric had explained to us that patria here meant not a nation or even a province, but the little rural neighborhood on the Menicio where the poet was born. This was not a boast, but a hope, at once bold and devoutly humble, that he might bring the muse, but lately come to Italy from her cloudy Grecian mountains, not to the capital, the Palatia Romana, but to his own little country to his father's fields, sloping down to the river and to the old beech trees with broken tops. Cleric said he thought Virgil, when he was dying at Brindisi, must have remembered that passage. After he had faced the bitter fact that he was to leave the Aeneid unfinished and had decreed that the great canvas, crowded with figures of gods and men, should be burned rather than survive him unperfected, then his mind must have gone back to the perfect utterance of the Georgics, where the pen was fitted to the matter as the plough is to the furrow, and he must have said to himself with the thankfulness of a good man, I was the first to bring the muse into my country. We left the classroom quietly, conscious that we had been brushed by the wing of a great feeling, though perhaps I alone knew Cleric intimately enough to guess what that feeling was. In the evening, as I sat staring at my book, the fervor of his voice stirred through the quantities on the page before me. I was wondering whether that particular rocky strip of New England coast about which he had so often told me was Cleric's patria. Before I had got far with my reading, I was disturbed by a knock. I hurried to the door, and when I opened it, saw a woman standing in the dark hall. I expect you hardly know me, Jim. The voice seemed familiar, but I did not recognize her until she stepped into the light of the doorway, and I beheld 
Lena Lingard. She was so quietly conventionalized by city clothes that I might have passed her on the street without seeing her. Her black suit fitted her figure smoothly, and a black lace hat with pale blue forget-me-nots sat demurely on her yellow hair. I led her towards Cleric's chair, the only comfortable one I had, questioning her confusedly. She was not disconcerted by my embarrassment. She looked about her with the naive curiosity I remembered so well. "'You're quite comfortable here, aren't you? I live in Lincoln now, too, Jim. I'm in business for myself. I have a dressmaking shop in the rally block out on O Street. I've made a real good start.' "'But, Lena, when did you come?' Oh, I've been here all winter. Didn't your grandmother ever write you? I've thought about looking you up lots of times, but we've all heard what a studious young man you've got to be, and I felt bashful. I didn't know whether you'd be glad to see me. She laughed her mellow, easy laugh that was either very artless or very comprehending. One never quite knew which. You seem the same, though. Except you're a young man now, of course. Do you think I've changed?' Maybe you're prettier, though you were always pretty enough. P perhaps it's your clothes that make a difference. You like my new suit? I have to dress pretty well in my business. She took off her jacket and sat more at ease in her blouse of some soft, flimsy silk. She was already at home in my place, had slipped quietly into it as she did into everything. She told me her business was going well and she had saved a little money. This summer I'm going to build a house for Mother I've talked about so long. I won't be able to pay up on it at first, but I want her to have it before she's too old to enjoy it. Next summer I'll take her down new furniture and carpet so she'll have something to look forward to all winter. I watched Lena sitting there, so smooth and sunny and well cared for, and thought of how she used to run barefoot over the prairie until after the snow began to fly, and how crazy Mary chased her round and round the cornfields. It seemed to me wonderful that she should have got on so well in the world. Certainly she had no one but herself to thank for it. Well, you must feel proud of yourself, Lena, I said heartily. Look at me, I've never earned a dollar, and I don't know that I'll ever be able to. Tony says you're going to be richer than Mr. Harling some day. She always bragging about you, you know. Tell me, how is Tony? She's fine. She works for Miss Gardner at the hotel now. She's housekeeper. Mrs. Gardner's health isn't what it was, and she can't see after everything like she used to. She has great confidence in Tony. Tony's made it up with the Harlings, too. Little Nina's so fond of her that Mrs. Harling kind of overlooked things. Is she still going with Larry Donovan? Oh, that's on worse than ever. I guess they're engaged. Tony talks about him like he was president of the railroad. Everybody laughs about it because she was never a girl to be soft. Oh, she won't hear a word against him. She's so sort of innocent. I said I didn't like Larry and never would. Lena's face dimpled. Some of us could tell her things, but it wouldn't do any good. She'd always believe him. That's Antonia's failing, you know. If she once likes people, she won't hear anything against them. I think I'd better go home and look after Antonia, I said. I think you had. Lena looked at me in frank amusement. It's a good thing the Harlings are friendly with her again. Larry's afraid of them. They ship so much grain they have influence with the railroad people. What are you studying? She leaned her elbows on the table and drew my book toward her. I caught a faint odor of violet sachet. So that's Latin, is it? It looks hard. 
You do go to the theater sometimes, though, for I've seen you there. Don't you just love a good play, Jim? Oh, I can't stay at home in the evening if there's one in town. I'd be willing to work like a slave, it seems to me, to live in a place where there are theaters. Well, let's go to a show together sometime. You're going to let me come and see you, aren't you? Would you like to? I'd be ever so pleased. I'm never busy after six o'clock, and I let my sewing girls go at half-past five. I board to save time, but sometimes I cook a chop for myself, and I'd be glad to cook one for you. Well, she began to put on her white gloves. It's been awful good to see you, Jim. Well, you needn't hurry, need you? You've hardly told me anything yet. We can talk when you come to see me. I expect you don't often have lady visitors. The old woman downstairs didn't want to let me come up very much. I told her I was from your home town and had promised your grandmother to come and see you. How surprised Mrs. Burden would be! Lena laughed softly as she rose. When I caught up my hat, she shook her head. No, I don't want you to go with me. I'm to meet some Swedes at the drug store. You wouldn't care for them. I wanted to see your room so I could write Tony all about it, but I must tell her how I left you right here with your books. She's always so afraid someone will run off with you. Lena slipped her silk sleeves into the jacket I held for her, smoothed it over her person, and buttoned it slowly. I walked with her to the door. Come and see me sometimes when you're lonesome. But maybe you have all the friends you want. Have you? She turned her soft cheek to me. Have you? She whispered teasingly in my ear. In a moment I watched her fade down the dusky stairway. When I turned back to my room the place seemed much pleasanter than before. Lena had left something warm and friendly in the lamplight. How I loved to hear her laugh again. It was so soft and unexcited and appreciative. Gave a favorable interpretation to everything. When I closed my eyes, I could hear them all laughing. The Danish laundry girls and the three Bohemian Marys. Lena had brought them all back to me. It came over me as it had never done before, the relation between girls like those and the poetry of Virgil. If there were no girls like them in the world, there would be no poetry. I understood that clearly for the first time. This revelation seemed to me inestimably precious. I clung to it as if it might suddenly vanish. As I sat down to my book at last, my old dream about Lena coming across the harvest field in her short skirt seemed to me like the memory of an actual experience. It floated before me on the page like a picture, and underneath it stood the mournful line, Optima Deus Prima Fugit. End of chapter 2